Everything set up, gentlemen? Just about. Lights, cameras, And welcome back to the 70mm Mindset. I'm Nathan Matthews, joined here by Nathan Coley. And today we're going to be talking about the film uh, 2010 Leonardo DiCaprio-led uh, Shutter Island. Now, in terms of 2010 uh, psychological, mind-bending Leonardo DiCaprio films, this is probably one of, one of my favorites. Um, followed closely, or Inception is barely barely uh beats it out but yeah what do you what do you think just in general about this film nate um i would have to agree with the assessment compared to inception i real i've real i really enjoyed both of the films shutter island um spoilers right away um, i'm gonna address the big twist right away i had no clue that it was coming i Maybe some of it has to do with me watching kind of late at night on my first viewing, but I uh, it caught me completely off guard. But then I thought about it all, and I was really impressed with how much all of it connected and ended up making sense, even with that recontextualization. So mm-hmm. um, the twist wasn't the only thing that made it good, obviously, but it's what stuck out to me most and one of the main reasons I enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. I I love how... like they never set it up as that kind of movie. Like usually like I think to sixth sense is like the prime example of how to pull off like a, an effective twist and something that will really stick out and still make sense in the context of the story. I feel like shutter Island didn't follow the same formula, like sixth sense. You kind of get a series of like obvious clues about the nature of the film. And we still have some, uh, like a certain level of certainty about the background of the protagonist. But in Shutter Island, like we're we don't know anything about anything, right? The the protagonist is still kind of mysterious, but we get a lot of backstory that he talks about. Whereas something like Sixth Sense, the protagonist is like which has an established story and we don't really focus on the protagonist. So Shutter Island does that differently by focusing on the protagonist and it makes the twist even more like surprising considering that the we know so much about the protagonist but they still have a logical way to undo all of that information we've learned yeah and it's crazy because it's not even like they're necessarily undoing it they're almost telling two stories simultaneously yeah, they're they're giving the reasoning for all those things just a different perception of that reasoning yeah And there's so much, if you go back on a rewatch with this twist in mind, there is so much that you can look back on um, in terms of hints that are revealed through like some clever cinematography or uh, by some actions that certain characters make. A lot of it you can tell is set up, but they're so minor in the moment that you don't necessarily think much of it. And mm-hmm. you think, oh, well, that's that's kind of odd that that happened, but um, I guess there's an explanation for it. And then um, by the end, you realize, oh, wait, all of these moments were pointing to something, and then you get to really appreciate those on a rewatch. Mm-hmm. 
Like my favorite example of that is probably like very close to the beginning of the film. Uh, Chuck slash Doctor Sheehan. He kind of struggles to unholster his so gun. Take his ends gun up, out. Yep. Yeah, hun- handing them the whole holster. Um, and that that kind of is really easily played off as just he's like a newer detective or newer marshal, and it, it kind of makes sense even in the context of uh, both the character of Chuck and of Doctor Sheehan playing Chuck. Yeah, because if if it were just he's posing as a marshal in that scene, but it, I mean, it's reasonable that someone might randomly fumble with something one time. Like that's not an, that's not a unreasonable thing to assume at, at any point, but you see that um, it's actually Dr. Sheehan who has no experience being a U.S. marshal and probably has had very little, probably none experience um, taking a gun out of a holster before. So it lines up from both perspectives and mm-hmm. there, there's a, there are actually a couple. There's another hint in that scene, that same exact scene that I really like. Like when McPherson, the main guard that greets them at first, he looks pretty frustrated with him when he struggled. He looks pretty frustrated with uh, Chuck slash Sheehan. Naming these characters is going to be a bit of a confusing thing. <laughs> Maybe um, for now we just call them what. Uh, since the majority of the movie happens in Teddy's, like in his perception. Fantasy. We should just call yeah. them by their their fantasy names. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So when Chuck struggles to take the gun out of the holster, McPherson acts pretty frustrated. And mm-hmm. before, right before that happens, when they're just walking and approaching uh, McPherson, all of the guards are on very high alert. They're all armed, and uh, Teddy even points out like they're pretty on edge for just an entrance and. McPherson plays it off as well as because this pr- prisoner has escaped, but it's actually because the most dangerous prisoner is right in front of them. Yeah. I love those details like that. Like it, for example, back on Chuck's gun for a second, McPherson would be frustrated either situation. Now, mm-hmm. even though McPherson wasn't as on board with, uh, Teddy's experiment of letting him live out his fantasy, he still would be somewhat frustrated at both Chuck and Sheehan for not uh, effectively unholstering the gun because uh, McPherson being the warden, he would likely know how to do that pretty effectively. So he would be, uh, he wouldn't be happy with Dr. Sheehan for not acting out his role very effectively, but also the character of Chuck as a marshal, he wouldn't be happy with um, right. his, his skills with a gun. So it, it, it works out both ways and really clever details with this film. And you almost wonder if the characters had tried to train him in that, in just taking a gun out of a holster. If, wonder if they had trained it. Because since they thought about so much in setting up this super elaborate role play, I wonder, like, maybe they were even detail-oriented enough to try and train him. And maybe that contributes to some of the frustration as well, because we trained you in this and you still messed it up. So mm-hmm. that could be another factor. Yeah, like we saw before with, uh, I don't remember the name of the, the woman that they interviewed, but um, she she uh, had very, like, memorized lines, and uh, Teddy even points this out, like, it's like she was taught them. Um, yep. So we do have some evidence of people, like, being taught how to act, so this is a very elaborate uh, experiment that they're pulling off, and it required basically everyone to be full hands-on involved with it. 
Right. And so do like there are many other hints we could point to uh about the twist, but do we wanna where do we wanna go from here? It, do we wanna just keep pointing those out? I, I'd like to like hit on some of my favorites maybe. But Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm. So my my personal like my favorite interaction is uh, when Teddy's like interrogating all the staff, like uh, the nurses and the orderlies, like uh, the the levels of like Inception style, like meta acting within an acting role. Like it's amazing what the actors <laughs> and the characters are doing. So we see uh, Teddy's like asking the whole room uh, about what happened the night that Rachel Solando escaped. And everyone's kind of reluctant to respond, and it's pretty like accurate to what we would think would happen in a real world scenario. And all the characters are technically acting at this point too. So the first person that we see admit, I believe, is just the guard, and he he's it's very difficult to get him to admit, and then. Dr. Colley's reaction is like my favorite part because it, it seems like a genuine reaction on the first watch, but the second time through, you can tell that like Colley isn't an amazing actor. So Colley's actor effectively portrays a character acting. As confusing as that sounds, like I I know. I just yeah. love how like they're able to portray bad acting through acting. Yeah, that's that's a whole nother element to appreciate that I didn't quite think about until you brought it up. It's just like any one person could have uh, ruined this whole um, idea, mm-hmm. uh, and it's pretty crazy to think that they were ma- they were able to uh, convince all these, mind you, mentally insane people. All they all of them were trained well enough to keep all of this under wraps. And that just makes you appreciate the writing and the character acting working together in a really brilliant way. Mm-hmm. Um, another interaction, we, we won't spend a ton of time talking about these, but uh, I loved, uh, oh man, what was it? It was when Dr. Sheehan, or when Shuck, is uh, questioning uh, one of the the prisoners that they're interviewing uh, he he uh, asks why they would let Doctor Sheehan go on vacation like during an investigation, and right. Chuck is Doctor Sheehan, so uh-huh. it it's like that's one of my favorite moments just because like he's he's that involved in it and he kind of creates an alibi for himself in doing that, and I, I just thought it was funny when Doctor Sheehan asked why Doctor Sheehan left. Yeah. Pretty meta. And another uh, cinematic note on that scene. It, that's the scene where uh, the two, Teddy and Chuck, are interviewing. Um, I don't remember what the patient's names were. I think one of them was like Bridget, and then I don't remember the other name. Either way, um, when the camera is focusing on Teddy, there is a guard in the background out of focus. When it's focusing mm-hmm. on the, the patient they're interviewing, there is a guard in the background out of focus. When it's focusing on Chuck, there is no guard in the background, kind of signifying yeah. how the two patients are being watched, but Chuck doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. I I didn't notice these things on my first watch through, even after my second oh, watch through. But I, I picked up on them in commentary and stuff. Like, so it, it goes deeper than just a normal 
like first or second watch through like these are the like i'm sure these commentators that i that i've seen they've um they've they've gone through the film like four or five times to pick up on those kinds of things and like i i I definitely didn't pick up on them myself but yeah i'm sure there are a few that i'm sure there are a few that we're gonna end up leaving out of this um because film like this with uh just as much talent as we've seen already um, on only two viewings. I'm sure there's some more that we can pick up on or that we could have picked up on. So um, if you've seen this film once, I would highly recommend a rewatch with the twist in mind. Um, mm. Even w- even with our commentary, I think you'll get a lot more to enjoy just watching it on your own. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about like the whole... like? like premise of this movie i kind of mentioned it in the intro but it's a 20 2010 psychological mind-bending film about a leonardo dicaprio protagonist with dead wives and children that haunt him so we we have a lot of parallels to a similar film you may or may not have heard of called inception um it's it's just like why why is this such an intriguing premise for screenwriters like I, I'm trying to figure out like why it's always um, like I, I can't think of any other specific examples other than like other Nolan films, but the the protagonist with like dead or missing family, uh, like I I feel like it's an effective premise, but I'm just trying to figure out like we could we could talk about why it's so heavily used. Yeah, sure. So I think. When it comes to this film and Inception, those aren't necessarily the or the family drama and like the dead family members coming back to haunt them. I don't think that's necessarily like a main premise. I think that's something that they use uh, just because it's so such an effective way to flesh out a character. Mm-hmm. Like more of a I, subplot, I think the, but like an important subplot. Yeah, a very important subplot and. Like the main premises of Inception and this are way different, but they um, both borrow from that idea of lost family members and the effect that that can have on someone's life. And to arguably a more dramatic extent in this one than Inception. I know this film didn't mm-hmm. quite go into multiple dimensions, but there's still a lot of uh, complexity to be explored in this film. And I think just using the family tragedy as a vehicle for some of the emotional stakes and for the development and history of latest or sorry, Teddy um, ends up working out in a pretty good way. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's like this kind of film, like it's not, it's easy to mistake like similar films for like being like fake, really smart by having like twists or confusing mechanics. But this and inception like they both have like legitimately good writing on top of those uh sometimes like confusing or like awe-inspiring like dynamics that they have so kudos to this film for like doing what inception did successfully and like being able to have both like the the mind bending aspect and legitimately good writing because I know there's a lot of examples of films that try to achieve that same kind of like mind bending goal but kind of have some inconsistencies and like 
another Nolan film, Tenet, I feel like is a good example of that. Yep, I was going to bring like, that up. Though it had like really interesting mind-bending uh, dynamics that make you think. It's a very like smart film. There's a lot of holes in the writing, and not all of it really makes sense. This might be a cheap shot, but I think The Last Jedi is a bit of an example of a film that thinks it's really smart, but ends up failing on well, way more levels than Tenet. But like that, that film had it, it threw some twists on. It tried to subvert expectations and mm-hmm. did not have the writing to back it up. This one, much more so. All of the writing is kind of tied to the fundamental premise of we need to put on this act for this one character. And so mm-hmm. almost all of the irregularities that people might notice end up being, can end up being traced back to that uh, original premise. And when you have a sensible explanation for all of those, it really helps. Mm-hmm. Like, like you were saying with like it all being tied to the, uh, the treatment uh, plan they were able to carry that on effectively throughout the entire film while I was still able to be invested in what was originally presented as the main plot where like a marshal's mm-hmm. looking for like a lost patient on Shutter Island. So the fact that it's like able to pull both off effectively without them having like any like uh more like in your face like overlap it's it's carried on subtly both both ways. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but it's able to handle both effectively at the same time. I would definitely agree because right before the twist happened, it was in that scene by the campfire with the quote unquote real Rachel. Mm-hmm. When they were talking about how Teddy needs to escape this island because there is really shady stuff going on and this could be at the level of like Nazi camps and Japanese war crime level. I was like, wow, this sounds like it's going to be a really interesting third act. And then the scene in the lighthouse happened and I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Did not expect that at all, but dang, that's awesome. And it makes sense. Like, yeah, it's great to see. Like, it's not very often that like they changed the, the main, like where, what the actual conflict is. Like they changed that at least twice in the film that we know of. The first time the conflict was Rachel Solando. Second time the conflict mm-hmm. was why is everyone on this island so weird? Like are they after me? And then Teddy finally decides with Rachel Solando the second that they are like indeed after him. And then finally our third conflict is Teddy's legitimately a patient at uh, Shutter Island. So. The fact that like it's able to change gears, uh, so many times it y- you wouldn't think that it works, but it, it works on Shutter Island, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, it keeps every one of those conflicts compelling because it keeps it all from a grounded perspective. Like it, uh, the first ones you mentioned before Teddy finds out that he's actually latest, uh, they're all from his perspective, and they all follow like almost like many stories within their own within the the time span of each conflict if that makes any sense Mm -hmm. um like there's almost a little bit of a realization at the end of each of those and then that gets subverted only to take you into another compelling plot it's it's really 
crazy thing structure wise now now that I like start to think about it in that way with those shifts. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one thing that I really noticed throughout the film was um, how well they set up like the the setting without like without like blowing the uh without blowing teddy's uh reality of him being a patient so like all the mm-hmm. exposition like telling teddy about um the island uh all of the exposition in general wasn't necessarily a shock to him and i'm not sure how like accurate that is like with like his coping me- mechanism they call it but the way that they both give us exposition and like they accomplish their goal of uh helping Teddy live out the fantasy of him like being a US marshal um i i really appreciated like how exposition kind of served two purposes uh in the start of this film when they're kind of describing the island right because you may think that wait why why would they have to explain this place to Andrew slash Teddy if Andrew already knows this place because he's been here. But then they you realize not only are they doing it to inform the audience, which is kind of the primary function, but there's also that secondary function of, no, we need to uh, get Teddy into this um, illusion even further. And if we explain this like it's a new thing, that'll make it seem like he's on a new plot as a U.S. Marshal. Yeah, just working on those two different levels, both making sense. It's great. Yeah. Um, trying to think. Uh, I'd like to talk about um Teddy's uh flashbacks and like dream sequences that he has because I feel like these are some of the more like trippy and yeah. more like informative um scenes of the film. Also, just like cinematography and filmmaking wise, the his second dream sequence where like we see, um, like him talking to uh, his daughter, uh, and like his wife is standing there with the children. That's like one of the most unsettling scenes I've oh, seen gosh, in a yeah. long time. Like, kudos to that. Like, I heard a lot of um, like in the sound design, like frequencies just playing that were very hard to hear. But like, just kind of added tension. Like, I wouldn't recommend watching this film super late at night because, like, that just those like frequencies and stuff. Like, uh, I watched just a, a documentary about it, but it it really makes you just physically unsettled. Um, like with the 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 sound design that they work that I I'm kind of geeking out of the, over the sound design, but like I I just love that whole uh, dream sequence that they had. Really, really unsettling. Uh, yeah, I, I will do a quick note on the sound design. I almost found the soundtrack in this film most most effective during its absence, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, most notably that I, that I can remember when Teddy is blowing up um, Kali's car and his his wife and one of his children are standing there about to be engulfed in the explosion. The sound just completely cuts out except for a faint... Um, a faint noise you can hear of the waves crashing in the background mm-hmm. and it, it just puts all the focus on the visuals all the focus on what Teddy's focused on 
just focused on how surreal that moment is, how surreal that vision is, and that hallucination. Yeah. But that's, that's just a quick note. To, oh, yeah, right. yeah. So to get on to the actual dream sequences, I I really liked how they were far more saturated, like very noticeably so. Mm-hmm. And that really helps you differentiate between them and makes them just feel more vivid, uh, both in his mind and visually. Yeah, like the apartment especially. Like the there was like a wallpaper I remember. Yeah. And like the, the fire is like really orange and uh I believe Teddy's wife has like a like a a vibrant like dress on and like the curtains. Yeah, it's it's dress, just a very yeah. vibrant environment. Um, and then the sunset is very dramatic out the window during that oh, too. Yeah. It's like really deep purple and deep pink. Yeah. That was very, a really beautiful sequence like yeah and it's it's really intense when the like the ashes were falling i think they were falling like the whole time but they just got like they gradually gradually more and more intense yeah Yeah. until his wife started turning to ashes which was obviously symbolic of the fire that she started trying to commit suicide Mm -hmm. um which I guess that kind of brings us to uh, there are two main symbols that kind of run throughout the film, fire and water. Yeah. Um, Fire is kind of a representation of the fantasy that Andrew is living in. And you'll notice like early on in the film, he's never lighting his own cigarettes. He's trying to avoid fire at pretty much all costs. Mm -hmm. When his version of latest is introduced, it starts with, it starts panning from behind the chair and then it shows the fire first and then reveals mm-hmm. the version of, of latest in his head. And it's not until he's in ward C going to find George noise that he starts lighting his own matches showing that he's starting to peel away from the fantasy just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And water is kind of the same way. Uh, he avoids that at all costs. One moment that I'm sure many of you have caught on to, maybe you thought it was a mistake. When they're interviewing uh, Bridget, the female patient, she asks for a glass of water, and when she goes to take it, there's no glass in her hand because that's from Teddy's POV, and he's trying to block out the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that's one of those things that I picked up in commentary, not on my own. Yeah. I mean, I did find that a little strange because if, he, if he's like going to block out a simple glass of water. Like I, I feel like he'd be having really strong reactions to the rain that was surrounding. Like I know he had some reactions to it, but like he's surrounded by an ocean. It's like torrent, horrible downpours. I think it, it, it would have been pretty neat if they would have given him a little bit more uh, of a reaction in some of those moments. Like when he's in the graveyard with Chuck, when the, mm-hmm storm is almost at its most intense and he has to go into the building i think there was some potential there to expand on his uh the significance of water symbolically being like a remembrance of his tragic past yeah like i think it's like with the like the super fine details with like uh the prisoner woman drinking the non-existent water like those those are very small details like in comparison to something that's a little bit more like on the nose with like um uh his like back to his dream sequence like it it starts raining 
as like he's waking up like going back to reality and there's actually like water falling onto his bed i believe oh yeah and then like there's fire like in the dream sequence um because like fire is like a part of his fabrication like his uh his version of andrew latus that like was an arsonist like the the simple just he he started fires like literal fires that is just tying it to just signifying that it's part of his fantasy and i love how like disgusting he makes latus out to be in his visions mm-hmm. um like just that absolutely nasty scar running across his entire face. I think there are some stitches or staples in the face, just like a, an extremely exaggerated and dramatic version of it, which just shows the extent he's willing to go to, to try and live in this fantasy and make it a reality. Yeah. Um, what are some other examples of uh, like him just like very, very desperately like clinging on to his fantasy like uh his story with like the the marshals like he he uh doesn't he end up calling out chuck on like changing where he was from right because uh like teddy uh the character of teddy is like from was it portland and chuck um, like said like seattle was, or something it was portland or seattle i think it was one of the two, but yeah, I remember. I know which scene you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the That's one just, like right before he meets Rachel too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just like Teddy's very desperately clinging on to this fantasy, even as he starts like getting clues that like his reality isn't like truly reality. But oh yeah, because in that that same scene that he talks to that he like talks to Chuck about where he's from. Uh, there's also like he get he has like a note. I don't remember exactly what that note was, but I think it was something that like proved that he was Andrew or sh- like hinted at him oh, being Andrew. I, I believe, and it was he just the, didn't want to admit it. The fifty-seven or the sixty-seven? Uh, oh, sixty-seven. Okay. The 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 Rachel Solanda the first the note that he found in her room. Oh, uh, the rule of four and yeah. sixty-seven prisoner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't. So I don't not know why. To admit that. Yeah, I don't know why the um, because it'd likely be the medical staff that planted that. I'd assume. Like, why would they give him clues to, uh, his fantasy not being real? Like that. That's what I'm wondering. Like, why would they? Plant I did find that. that yeah, that kind of came up too when he he had uh, shoot, not Andrew. Teddy asked Kali where where Chuck was, where his partner was. And then Collie was just like, you don't have a partner. And this yeah. was before like the revelation in the lighthouse. Like, are they trying to give it away now? Um, I think they're maybe they're just like trying to test to see, uh, how easy he would be to let go of his fantasy. Like, I don't, I don't know the exact reasoning for that, but yeah, I could think of it. Just find a little odd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then another thing I want to point out, um, very very often throughout the first couple acts, Chuck asks, I don't know how many times, but he asks uh, Teddy, you good, boss? You okay, boss? He does that like 10 times probably, just trying to reinforce the idea that he is working with him. 
despite the fact that uh, Chuck is actually Teddy's boss because Sheehan is the person overseeing mm-hmm. Andrew. So some irony there. And then that all, their relationship works. Like Teddy would trust um, Chuck because he's been with, uh, Andrew has been with Sheehan for the past however many years. So there's, there's already a bit of a relationship there, which explains why they were paired together in the first place. It's not just some random person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I that kind of goes back into like the details um, with uh, like all the clues to the the uh, I'm looking at the experiment that they're doing for Teddy. Um, like there's there's uh, examples of like Kali, for instance, like kind of probing like for specific like reactions, like for different events, like when uh, Kali first meets in quotes uh teddy uh he he's talking about previous treatments before um the facility at shutter island was like before Kali like humanized it he's talking about how uh patients were often like drowned and he like emphasizes the word drowned to see if that would get a reaction out of teddy oh like like just details like that like kind of back to the to the previous uh point of future references to the past but yeah i didn't notice that line that's really a neat detail one one thing with that scene um that's kind of like one of the like underlying conflicts that kind of is taken throughout the whole movie rather than broken up into like the four areas that we laid out earlier is just the idea of um collie's idea of how to heal, heal these patients Versus Nayring's idea, which he's Nayring is much more trying to stick to what they did um, previously, like the the little bit more barbaric methods. While kind of the stake that runs throughout this whole film, but you don't realize it until the third act is Kali is trying to prove his method to be superior, and so there's a lot riding on it whether or not Andrew actually accepts his reality at the end. And that doesn't become evident until the third act, but it is brought up as an idea in that scene that you mentioned and just kind of underlying for the rest of it. Yeah. And then uh, that reminds me of um, just on sound design for one last moment, they, uh, the Mahler quartet that's playing uh, when Teddy mm-hmm. first walks into um, the, the office. Um, the juxtaposition with the occasionally cheerful, like it keeps switching between a major and a minor, but the occasionally like cheerful uh, string quartet is as the uh, war scenes are playing out. Like just that juxtaposition of the music um, and like the terrible things that we're seeing on screen. Like I don't know what it is about like having like a a, a cheerful or the, the the music's cheerful at times like an occasionally cheerful thing like playing with like these like terrible like war scenes but i it's just a really powerful way to um make the moment more effective yeah for sure i'm glad you're here to pick up on some of these musical cues and st- stuff like that because i'm pretty amateurish when it comes to pointing this all out but good points mm-hmm. um with the, I we should we discuss his like history in the military a little bit? 
yeah, since that's a that. pretty foundational point to well, his, I think uh, I think it's safe to say that like that's the cause of Teddy's uh mental state of his his own yeah yeah and then like his, his, I mean his wife's mental problems are another thing but uh the military story kind of influences how he handles those in the future so mm-hmm. this on, is a little on more his, foundational on, on his wife for a second did they ever really talk about like his wife's um insanity like she's just kind of insane all of a sudden like the, yeah I don't, it, I don't know if they actually said what caused her to go insane mm-hmm. and then I, teddy, I know they spent a good amount of time explaining that teddy avoided it uh because of his own traumatic past he drank he tried to pass out or dismiss the problems by drinking mm-hmm. and so that that shows how her health unraveled even more, but I don't think they actually gave an explanation for what caused her to be insane in the first place, which I think could have benefited. The film could have benefited from that a little bit because it's kind of just something that's dropped in there to bring Teddy to this point. Yeah. But not a huge deal. Yeah. On Teddy's history, like I feel like he'd never really crossed the threshold threshold of like being a, like a, a patient at Shutter Island until after uh, he killed his wife. Like before then, like he just had like PTSD. I feel like that's not really something Basically. that he com- committed to like an institution for. Um, but it's uh, it's after the point where he shoots his wife that he is like he feels guilty for that and for the death of his children that his wife caused. Like that layered upon with his PTSD at that point, like that's, that's what drives him to insanity and these wild coping mechanisms. Yeah. And he feels guilt for his kids because of the help he failed to get his wife. Mm -hmm. So it goes even a little bit deeper. There's, there's like a whole chain of guilt and it really, really explains why Andrew was in this position in the first place. Um, to, To expand a little bit more on his military experience those scenes in i believe it was dachau concentration camp mm-hmm. um those were like just gruesome and i mean very effective especially with the juxtaposition that you had mentioned earlier and when when those make an appearance in hit teddy's dreams i think combining his ptsd from the military combining that with all the guilt he feels from his kids is kind of taking the two worst experiences and molding it into one, making it even more uh, effective and more tragic for him, which just sets him on an even more downward spiral. Yeah. And I'd, uh, I'd like to expand on just like the, the doc out. Like I, I did a little bit of like just really basic research on it and basically, uh, like that did actually happen where uh, American soldiers uh, shot like I think the real number was like eleven uh, German guards that um, they they basically like were trying to flee so they ended up uh, act, that 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 basically the, the shooting scene did actually happen uh, historically. Yeah, quick note on that shooting scene: I found it really odd. Like they do this cool camera movement where they're panning it from left to right. 
but everyone starts shooting at the same time, but they don't get the, but they get gunned down in the order that the camera's yeah, going rather than I, all at once. I think like, that, that was simply for cinematic effect. Like definitely it, for they, they chose uh form over function there, but still definitely. an effective moment. Yeah. Um, I thought, and I, I hate even like dwell, getting into some of the specifics of these just because of how horrific it is, but mm-hmm. just the pile of, like frozen over. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you guys know if you've seen the film mm-hmm. and you're probably not getting a lot out of this if you haven't seen the film. So just cause Which, we're, yeah. we're using like latest and like Teddy and interchangeably at this point. So if you haven't exactly, yeah. Yeah. Watch, people, watch the film. People have seen the film if they've made it this far. I mean, but, yeah, there's no way you're here and haven't watched the film. Um, mm-hmm see um oh another uh historical thing when they talked about the the orbital lobotomy that was a real procedure that was carried out for a long time in the 20th century and the the man who invented the surgery actually received a nobel prize um because like he had a lot of uh outliers like a lot of really unlikely uh, patients that actually ended up benefiting from the surgery. And like, I, I watched a video essay about like the, the history of it and the way it's described in the film is actually fairly accurate to the, the true procedure that was actually used for a period of about like 50 years, I believe um, before it was uh, basically banned for the negative effects that it had on patients. But mm-hmm. The lobotomy was a real procedure that was carried out for a long time worldwide. Right. Historical accuracy. Always nice. That's one thing it has over Inception, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. Uh, Um, I think when we were talking about um, Teddy's uh, journey as a patient, uh, there was a quote uh i i don't recall who said it but uh likely like a uh, dr sheehan or dr collie later in the film the greatest obstacle to her recovery talking about rachel solando uh was the refusal to face what she had done so this was spoken about rachel but definitely meant for teddy like exactly i i think a lot more of her story is applicable to that too like she's living in a fantasy where she assigns roles to the people around her mm-hmm. and believes that they're like, they're, they're almost giving Teddy a meta commentary on himself. Yeah. So like he, they, they can saying, see like, what he thinks about his situation from a third person, like more unbiased and, point of view. Yeah. And they show him being very confused by all of it. Like he, and yet he's living in one of them. He's one of the people that like, of course, like thinks thinks it's messed up, like what his wife like did, like of like killing their children and like wanting to, um, to just continue on with life. Like that, that's a very messed up thing to begin with. But we also see, like Teddy's like secondhand reaction to that from like hearing like that Rachel Solando apparently did that, and yeah, that that's definitely a really like like you said meta commentary. I really like that word for. Yeah. what they're doing. So do we want to talk about 
like just specifically that scene where the twist is revealed because I've, I have almost a page of notes just on that scene. Yeah, I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say on that. So, like, I mean, I don't. Well, first, I just wanna. I'm just wondering, like, what was your experience? Like, did you see the twist coming at all in your first viewing? No, like, were you shocked when they explained it? Yeah, like when I when I first like I I continued to believe the original uh, story even after uh, the twist was revealed. Like, I thought for majority of the time when they're explaining the twist until Chuck started uh, getting involved. I thought that this was more of uh, the Shutter Island doctors, like trying to, like make Teddy go insane or trying to like manipulate Teddy. Um, but I, I never, I never suspected it like so much that I continued to believe the original plot until yeah, even partway through the reveal. And I, w- I was kind of right there with you. Like I was thinking, well. And the doctor, Dr. Colley, has kind of been, he's been antagonistic, at least to some degree, throughout this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So are they really going to, like, they kind of switched them a little bit. Like, Colley's almost the hero of this story. He's the one that's trying to do this ref- revolutionary procedure that doesn't harm people in any way. And Teddy's the one that's fighting back against it. He's the one that's done terrible things and is dangerous. Like so, almost that role reversal was like mm-hmm. I didn't expect that to really happen. That's not, and it's not necessarily because of anything in the story. It's just so uncommon, I think, at least for yep. the movies I've seen, that I just didn't expect it to be a move that was pulled off. Yeah, for sure. And like, I, I don't remember the specifics, but Doctor Collie had a whiteboard with several letters on it, and I think it had to do with the names oh, yeah. that Teddy invented. I don't remember the specifics, but just like the that much like thinking that goes into it like the names are kind of strange like latest isn't a super common name or solando like definitely not i think i think it was latest and solando actually that were the the letters that the the names that were anagrams but yeah for that i mean that was the rule of four there were like four uh names that were all anagrams of each other so i don't Shoot, I don't remember the specifics, but I I did find it really weird. Like, how did Teddy manage to fabricate names that happen to be perfect anagrams? Like subconsciously too. Like that either like is a a detail that's too fine of a detail, or it just shows the like depth of his coping mechanism and how far, uh, how far deep he is into this crazy fantasy that he's starting to believe. Yeah, and I, I mean, th- that sounds crazy to have a hallucination that deep that you come up with anagramic names, but the, he, he hallucinates an entire conversation. Yeah, subconsciously. He he hallucinates an entire conversation with a character who has been made up by other people and uh-huh. manages to have like a 10-minute conversation with them. And, and like his... um And... uh he he must have known like something about like had had some idea of like what a transorbital lobotomy was or something like because uh, Rachel Solanda the second when he's talking to her in the cave um, like she has very like detailed like ideas and for Teddy to yes. like all be coming up with that like subconsciously like 
it's it's either like impossible writing or like I said, like it, it, it could just be a sign of the depth of his hallucination. Which yeah, I I don't know. Did he say did uh Kali say that the hallucinations were a result of his withdrawal, or was he saying the like shaking of his hands were the symptoms like he because he was still like recovering from with alcohol withdrawal Mm, and yeah i don't i don't remember but i think i think i I know hallucinations were were from the the drugs i believe but because i i thought that the drugs were something he made up to explain what was going on oh yeah like the aspirin like rachel uh yeah after after rachel the the second was the one that told him about it and that that whole conversation was hallucinated, and I think Kali addresses it specifically. Like, there weren't any drugs or anything. It was like just an aspirin. You are re- recovering from withdrawal. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that I, can. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously no expert in this field of hallucinations and what they might do to you, but yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it seems I I'd assume like, like I think they had him. They had him on a prescription i think and i think is withdrawal from that because uh, i don't think alcohol would last that long and the assumption he's been is he's been on shutter island for a while for like um, two years i think they said yeah so I, I think it would be the medications they were giving him all right yeah either that's unclear or i just don't remember mm-hmm um, but i during this scene where uh Kali is explaining everything. I just love the facial expressions that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio pulls off, yeah. um, and just all all the stammering that he's doing. Like he's just trying to cope with all this information. At some points, he's fighting back. At some points, he's stumbling over his words. He's whispering. He's just like in disbelief, and he's just trying to desperately cling on to what he has. He's fighting back until Chuck shows up, and then. He still tries to fight back against it a little bit, but more and more becomes obvious to him. And as that, as his narrative unravels, you can kind of see his mental state unraveling as well. And Leonardo DiCaprio pulled it off very well. Yeah. I feel like we've only talked about like in all of our podcasting, like uh, we've talked about two films with Leonardo DiCaprio in them. And it always ends up being like evidence of, Leonardo DiCaprio's like acting ability like he's just amazing with like fine emotions and like stuff that I'd imagine is extremely hard to portray like I I I do want to learn more about like his his methods for acting and like really just amazing job all around from Leo in this film and yeah because if you think about it he's an actor playing a character who is unknowingly a different person like that's got to be hard to portray. I mean, it, like, it's a little bit difficult just to think about, and then you have to actually portray it all. Yeah. Um, the accent didn't throw me off too much. It it did in the beginning. Yeah, I, but I, I got used that, to it. I thought that was interesting. Like he, I I don't think anyone in New York actually talks like that. Maybe in the fifties, but like maybe yeah. or I think it was Boston technically. But um, Boston, yeah, yeah, like. He he kind of turned it on and off. Like there were a couple words he'd say, it, like, uh, like Rachel Salando. Like he he'd do that kind of. But like it, it felt like it was only for certain words. But 
then again, it did it's seem like a little bit was, inconsistent to me too. Yeah, I feel like a, a lot of deal. accents, like if you recognize just like regional, like U.S. accents, like you only recognize the words that are different from your accent. But right, yeah. So, and then I, I, I thought it was more. Good, yeah, for the most part, definitely. The acting was fantastic. The accent was fine for the most part. Just mm-hmm. a couple moments of inconsistency, but. Uh, last thing, maybe about that uh, scene where everything is being revealed. When they finally show the fl- the full flashback of what happened to the kids, like, I mean, that was that was insane. I, like, I don't know I, if I even want to uh, describe it because, like, I, I I'm good with it's so graphic. It, yeah. yeah, but just, I mean, the shots dwell for so long on some of the things really let you really let everything sink in for the characters in the audience. It, it kind of gives you and like it, a sense of like, like sympathy or like empathy for like what Teddy's feeling, like for witnessing oh, something absolutely. so like utterly just insane. Like it, I, I think it's, it's like it was necessary for it to happen in the film, like, and definitely like an uncomfortable scene to watch, but like it, it, it's it's really important to like helping portray like how Teddy got to this, how Andrew got to this point, and then the wife's insanity on top of everything else, mm-hmm. like just how oblivious she is. Like they can be our living dolls. Oh my freaking like, gosh! That was uh, and then she, I mean she just has like a dead look in her eyes and she's like hobbling around. Yeah. Not walking normal. It makes me feel like, like Teddy's like still the victim in all of this, even though like, like it was because of like his mental state that he, he shot her like, and honestly, like I, I, I genuinely believe that like the only true antagonist in this film is the mental illness that the characters face like no like it it's earlier presented that like Kali and uh dr nay whatever nay nay na- ring, ring. Na- I, yeah there we go got it um <clears throat> uh, it's like earlier presented that they are the antagonists and then it shifts to like being teddy himself um and later it's just Teddy's wife or or more rather her her mental illness is like the true antagonist of the film. So, yeah, like you've got like the antagonists that kind of last throughout the different sections we mentioned. Mm-hmm. But then the, there's like an almost an underlying antagonist, I might say, um just that mental illness that's causing all of this. Um it's And then there there is some fault that falls on Andrew. Uh, because he didn't deal with his problems well. Yeah, just but, turned to and, and, and he ignored his wife's problems. Yeah, yeah, but just trying to still ignore in the it. end. Like he was placed in like a an absolutely like unheard of situation. Yeah, like very very traumatizing, and he already had a pre existing like likely PTSD. So most likely, yeah. So it's. It's like totally, it's totally justified how much 
pain he feels and how much you want to sympathize with him just because like he's a victim of such terrible circumstance despite some of the circumstance being caused by him mm-hmm. you like still just the extremity of the situation you can't help but yeah. sympathize like, with him that's something i really love this film for for like creating a genuine like somehow relatable without being re- remotely relatable like connection to the character like back to I, I love to to draw parallels with this film and inception because they're so similar but with uh Cobb and inception we don't really see a super relatable aspect to it but this film we're able to like see from the character's perspective a lot more effectively like through like more detailed flashbacks and through all the the fantasies that teddy's teddy's creating that actually helps us to understand reality right and um with with some more uh parallels and in those visions i think this line is stated three or four times throughout the film um it's when so one character will ask another baby why are you all wet First off, I think Dolores says it to, um, shoot, what? Teddy. Okay. These names are too confusing. Um, Dolores says it to Teddy in one of the dream sequences. I think the second dream sequence. She says it after he's, um, woken up from his first vision. He's like in the room, um, in in, in the uh, room in the ward. The, The fireplace. Yeah. Room. Yeah. After the fireplace sequence, he's he. You think he's woken back up, but no, he's actually still in a dream in the place where he's sleeping, that, and he that sees Dolores. She was like covered in blood at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was freaky. And uh, I, yeah, I guess that that's actually another question. I wonder why she was covered in blood if there wasn't any blood because she drowned the kids. Like, yeah. I. I what is the it blood might have there just from? Been, well, Teddy had at this death or something. He he didn't at this point. Real, I don't think that was. He wasn't perceiving that as his wife. That was the same like actor for oh, his, Rachel. Oh, Rachel's kids. Yeah, first. Yep, that's so. Right. He still thought that was tied in with the Rachel storyline, even though Rachel is like kind of his wife as presented in the fantasy. Yeah, that makes sense. And back back to the sequence in the actual wardroom. When Dolores comes in, she's like, she's a little bit wet because there's um, rain in the room. And Teddy asks her why she's all wet. And then um, when Teddy comes into the lighthouse uh, at the start of the third act, Collie asks him the same question, which is very odd for Dr. Collie to tell Teddy that. But then you realize it's calling back to the line. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, these two lines are callbacks to a line that we haven't heard yet. The line that that uh, the whole thing started from was uh, Teddy asking Dolores that right before he discovered what happened to his k- kids. Mm-hmm. So it's like these two lines are calling back to a line that hasn't happened yet in the film, but has happened narratively. Oh, yeah, I see that. Yeah, really interesting connections. Yeah, back back again on just like the level of detail in this film. Like, 
exactly. this this could never happen in reality even though it's like presented as a like it's not really as, as though a story could happen um i forget what the fiction term is for that realistic fiction it's presented as a realistic fiction basically in the sense that like there's not any fantasy mechanics but the levels of detail and like clever storytelling like definitely not remotely realistic but for sure an entertaining film experience that i thoroughly enjoyed yeah and this goes back to the um i might have talked about this before just that distinction between um internal consistency and being realistic it's not a problem that this film isn't realistic at all because it's consistent with what it sets up for itself. Um, I mean, and that's obviously very applicable to movies of different genres like sci-fi, but even here, a movie that seems like it could happen, it's still very much out there. Yeah. And it all makes it, it can all still follow a logical through line as long as it maintains consistency with itself, which I would say generally this film did quite a good job of that. Yeah. Definitely. And I feel like we always end up on like Star Wars, but that's going back to the uh the Star Wars sequel argument with the main reasons why that trilogy didn't work. Like it's it's either a film is going to set up like realistic guidelines for its universe and follow through with them, or it's gonna be inconsistent and not follow through. And or it's gonna film, do a hyperspace kamikaze and break all the internal consistency <laughs> despite how beautiful it looks. <laughs> yeah it's it, it you could say that this film did not have a a light speed ram uh no definitely moment. not <laughs> so yeah is there anything else you want to touch over um probably the ending like the i think we would have we have very ending yeah the very ending i feel like yeah. well, i mean we've got to talk about that mm-hmm. uh, do you have anything before that I, um as for kind of running out chronological oh uh dr nairing uh when teddy first meets him is is it um was it like understood that he's like a a german uh like he he was german but he's like very very good at like an english accent was it like was that what's um, happening I in the think moment so. well, i think i think that's right because he was able to Later on in the film, he was able to speak a few German words pretty fluently mm-hmm. and nailed them. So I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Oh, we never talked about uh the the college student. Uh, what was his name in Ward C? Oh, that George Noyce. Noyce. Yes. We never really talked about other than like the matches. Like we didn't talk much about like. Teddy's fantasy version of Noyce and the the real version of Noyce. Like so in, in Teddy's fantasy, Noyce was like a college student that like uh was like doing a study like for like toothpaste, I believe. And like a couple months later he was uh he was in Shutter Island. Um mm-hmm. and they sent him back and like because of Teddy's fantasy version of Shutter Island, like he he had the same like recurring symptoms so he he went back to shutter island so that was like why he didn't want to um like why, why teddy he made up the and teddy made up the story that he like i think he made up the story that he interviewed noise to try and mm-hmm. expose but that didn't end up actually happening at all 
Yeah. And once once Andrew slash Teddy actually sees George in Ward C, uh, George confronts him about everything. And, and I mean, I was obviously very confused on the first viewing, as was Teddy, because why is he mm-hmm. lashing out against Teddy when Teddy's tried to help him? Like, and then he, you he realize, calls him Andrew. He calls him Latus. Yeah. Uh, like he's whispering Latus' name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so once he actually sees Latus um, in the flesh, he goes off on him. He tell he he's George is the one that actually tells him the truth, but mm-hmm. Teddy doesn't take it. He doesn't listen to it. Um, so that I'm does show like the the edge of like the the experiment. Like they didn't get they didn't get noise in on it. For example, I wonder if they got any of maybe they didn't get any of Ward C on it, but just because they weren't anticipating that he would end up there. Yeah, because the only reason he got there was because of the power. Al. Maybe he would have gotten there anyway. Maybe they would have set it up in some way, but mm-hmm. well, either I feel way, like, um, I'm trying to remember oh, like how how they explained uh, his his like Ward C because he ended up uh, getting picked up by McPherson later, if I remember correctly. But like after did, the, didn't they figure after out after he they they did figure out that Teddy did break into Ward C. And he was instructed very explicitly not to do that. Um, yeah. But. Which. Well, yeah, because he after he beat up the prisoner, he was told just to take a walk. Yeah. Which you'd think they would want to restrain him after that. Like. Yeah. So maybe I think I think they ended up uh, carrying out. Well, th- I guess this ties really well into the ending. Uh, I think they ended up carrying out the lobotomy on him. Um, yeah, be- because uh, he like exhibited that violent behavior towards noise. So in the fantasy, uh, they just told him to take a walk, but in reality, they're gonna carry out the lobotomy if the uh, experiment didn't end up working. Oh sure, yeah, that can make no sense. And then. Let's see. In the scene with Noise, I mean, I just, I just find it really interesting that Noise is the one to reveal the truth, and like the one person Teddy doesn't even listen. Is it be like, is he just so wrapped up in the fantasy of everyone being out to get him that he just doesn't yeah. want to accept anything different at this point? I think, or also like he thought that like Noise, like he thought that Noise was like, like psychotic, like or insane, like he was in Ward C, right? right. And Teddy still at this moment thought that he was like a normal sane person. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's another point of irony. Um, Teddy and sorry if you can hear my dog. Teddy and Rachel too have a conversation about how the people who are labeled criminally insane. Uh, can, will not be listened to because if they say something rational, the they can point they can dismiss it with their insanity, mm-hmm. and they can do that with basically anything. Teddy is talking about that in his mind as someone who is criminally insane, who won't be listened to because of that very reason. Like, don't know if that's irony or just well, I think that's like layers of irony there. It's yeah, another unique thing. So, 
just on the ending then uh yeah teddy's like back in his like prison clothes at this point and he's talking with uh dr sheehan but he's like still like living out like the martial uh fantasy at this point so Mm -hmm. i i think it's at this point like teddy either just becomes teddy or like andrew uh just accepts like that uh, I I don't know exactly how to say it, but I feel like there was some like theory that maybe Andrew just wanted to continue being Teddy because Teddy's less uh, Teddy's easier to deal with than Andrew is, right? Um, because he he asked that question, which would be worse to live as a monster or to die as a good man, mm-hmm. and he kind of so ends up that making kind of is a little bit self conscious. I feel like. Yeah, because he ends up making one of those decisions by the end. Because as Andrew, he was living as a monster, um, mm-hmm. but he Andrew chose to be. I, at least I think he chose to be lobotomized so that he doesn't have any remembrance of his like absolutely tragic past. Yeah. Now, from what I understand of lobotomy, it's not necessarily like uh, as much of like a death sentence as they make it out to be in the film. Um, it's more of just like it'll alter your mental state, and like in most cases, it just left patients with like a like a more like depressed, like less active state. But the way that the film presents it, it is for sake of uh, discussion. It's more of just like Teddy accepting, like that he doesn't really want to. He, he's forfeiting control basically by being lobotomized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I love the look on Chuck's. Yeah. Now she hands face when when he goes back into the fantasy, you just see him look down and then like just look slowly over at everyone else who then takes a sigh of disappointment. And it, it's like a it's a pretty rough ending, pretty depressing, like not much ended up actually working out. Mm-hmm. Like the doctor failed. Yeah. And just just like he's just kind of disappointed like that they went through all this effort and like running all around the island to like live out andrew's crazy idea like and that didn't work out but yeah and i i think just one one detail in the ending that kind of cements uh that idea is um, I'm so bad with names right now. Um, Sheehan calls Teddy at, at right, right as uh, Andrew's walking off to go, presumably be lobotomized. Uh, Sheehan calls the name Teddy, and he doesn't respond. He doesn't turn around or acknowledge it or anything. Mm-hmm. So he's probably so, like lucid as Andrew at this point. He's just choosing. It seems to be like Teddy. It. Yeah, just choosing. He's he's, he's like, consciously being Teddy, and I don't know how, like, well he like remembers the entire like, like, the entire movie basically, like, if he just, uh, well, on that note, like at the beginning of the movie, like, does the story just start for Teddy at the start of the film, like on the boat, like I I'd assume that's just like 
that's where they'd start the film because that's where like the story of like Teddy starts and that's like the start of like Teddy's like character, I'd assume. Right. Like maybe they like maybe they sedated him and got him on the boat and then like he was awake by the time they were approaching the island. Mm-hmm. And at that or, point they just like uh, fully committed to the to the Teddy side of things rather than the Andrew side. Yeah. Um that would be my guess as to how it started. Yeah. And then I'm guessing everything since then, like Andrew likely remembers and is still able to like be Teddy at that point, but like think as Andrew, I'd assume. I don't know. Yeah, I think he's trying to make a conscious decision to he would rather die as a good man than to live as Andrew. Mm-hmm. He, he, he wants to end his life as it is, not necessarily end it physically, but like he's not, he's barely going to be the same person after the lobotomy. Mm-hmm. So he's dying as what he believes to be a good man as a fabrication of that yeah. good man. And that's like a really just powerful conclusion to this tragic story. Like just really Teddy, just the story of him, like going from uh, like the troubled ex-soldier that he was to like becoming mentally insane. Like it, it's just such a, like, like he doesn't really have any control of the situation at the end, other than the choice of, whether to be or not be lobotomized and just him accepting his fate. Like it's just a very powerful end to a tragedy. Yeah, definitely. I, that's about all I've got on the ending. Um, yeah. Kind of depressing, but <laughs> well, well on made that nonetheless. Note. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, guess that about wraps it up yes we can go uh if we want to do some grades oh yeah you want to go first sure um objectively i'm I'm kind of torn just between a and a minus i think i i think i would just have to go a Mm. uh some of the things that i thought were issues ended up being clarified um especially on a second viewing but yep. subjectively, I think I'll just go a little bit lower, A minus. I I don't really know why. I just wasn't super invested in my second watch through. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's better than my enjoyment of it, I guess. But I still love it a lot. Yeah. Um, I I think I mentioned this last time how I can't really effectively separate subjective and objective with things like films, like because I I I think that personally just that my like my objective opinion is really just a less intense version of my subjective opinion. So I'm just going to give it a single, single letter grade of, uh, of a, like it's in my, it's in my top 15 for sure. Like I, if it's this or inception, I'll, I'll still choose inception, even though this is objectively probably a better movie than inception. I Um, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still, I still would, personally place this lower than like something like inception um just because of like it's not very pleasant to watch i would say just with all the dark themes but it's definitely a very good film 
in and how it was made and how deep the details go in the story the storytelling yeah it's not quite as uh adventurous or feel good as inception might be in some ways Mm -hmm. like i think even just like films having like happier sad endings like might impact exactly yeah like my subjective score on them but right okay well that's been a good discussion absolutely uh, coming up in the future, uh, we're, we've been planning to do some uh, some more Star Wars. Uh, this time, talking about some TV shows. So we'll likely be talking about Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett uh, in two separate episodes. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for that in the future. Hopefully, we can get those out before Kenobi comes out. Yeah, I'd like to. Uh, that's a bad deal. Or like maybe by the time Kenobi's done airing, then we can do like a back to back to back of Mando, sure. Boba Fett, yeah. and Kenobi. Like that'd be interesting. I but, really hope that the Kenobi show is good. Oh, I, I do too. I'm I'm really hyped for it. Like with uh, I'm just hoping Ewan that the people who make it care. <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert for that Boba Fett episode. I hated the show, <laughs> so it'll be a bit. It'll be a bit of a debate, but. And I loved it for the fan service as just as a Star Wars fan. I'm, I still need to think harder about logically if I like it or not, but watching it, I, I definitely enjoyed it. But. Well, look forward to more on that soon. Yep. We'll see you in the future. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, if you have, but yeah, it's been a fun episode to record. All right. See you guys.